and while we're them, um, think about what words and images and ideas you see over and over. Um, and we, I want to talk about those. So you want to take Micah 5, 2, and well, that's obviously not just one verse, but <laughs> and then we'll pass it down. Um, as for you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though you are the least significant of Judah's forces, one who is to be a ruler in Israel on my behalf will come out of you. His origin is from remote times, from ancient days. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Oh, wait, there's a little more, I guess. Sorry. <laughs> they will dwell secure because he will surely become great throughout the earth. He will become one of peace. Isaiah, Isaiah 35, 5 through 7. God will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be cleared. Then the lamb will leap like the deer and the tongue of the speechless will sing. Waters <laughs> will spring up in the desert and the streams in the wilderness. The burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground fountains of water. Isaiah 42, 1 through 7. But here is my servant, the one I uphold, my chosen, who brings me delight. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He won't break a bruised reed. He won't extinguish a faint wick, but he will surely bring justice. God, the Lord says, I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to lead the prisoners from prison and those who sit in the darkness from the dungeon. Isaiah 9, 2-7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a pitch dark land, light has dawned. A child is born to us, a son is given to us, and authority will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom, establishing and sustaining it with justice and righteousness now and forever. So what do you think? Did you hear words or ideas? Good words. Miracles. What? Miracles. Well, the first isn't saying that everything in need would have great bounty. Mm. Yeah, I heard a lot of light and I heard a lot of healing, justice, freedom. There were a few water images.
God knew, I mean, when all these prophets were speaking, the Israelites were in exile, in, in bondage. And some of it was better than others, other parts of it. Like some were allowed to live fairly free, freely, but when you're led away from your home in chains, <laughs> it doesn't matter you know, how nicely they might treat you in the end, you're still not free and you're still not at home. Um, and a lot of it was not nice and a lot of it was brutal. So God knew what people needed to hear in exile, whether or not they had deserved it. <laughs> Doesn't really matter when you're in exile and you're hurting. Um, they needed to hear about healing and they needed to hear about ending thirst and having their needs met and being set free and having justice promised. So there's a lot of prophecy about that from the prophets because they needed it. Um, and it's not a coincidence that when Jesus goes into exile, the, the phrase you hear is out of Egypt, I have called my son. He's fulfilling that prophecy and it's, it's not accidental because God really wants us to understand and he wanted the people to understand that that was going back to the Exodus and that he's talking about freedom and he's talking about um, justice and he meant for people to make that connection. God's people were called out of Egypt and then Jesus was called out of Egypt. So God wanted them to make the connection that he understood what it was like to not be free um, and to be called out of that place instead you know how effective would it have been if if we see a picture of god just kind of looking down and saying oh yeah i see that you're in a little bit of trouble down there see that your life is rough mine's cool but <laughs> yours is not very nice um maybe i can do something about that you know, I don't think that would have had the effect that it did. <laughs> Jesus came and he got in the weeds. And Jesus felt the confusion of being in a place where his family knew no one. And they didn't understand the language, probably. There was probably an overarching, you know, language. But we don't, we don't know how much that crossed over. And we don't know how much the poorer people who spoke Aramaic knew of it. Um, I mean, I don't. Probably there are people who have studied it who do know, but I am not one of those people. Um, they were probably poorer than they had been in Israel, which was already pretty poor, we're told in the story. So he would have known loneliness and striving and feeling like things might never be easy and like life might always be a scramble to figure out what you're going to eat and where you're going to live and all of that. And it was from that place that he was able to not look down at human beings, but to look them straight in the face and say, I am going to free you because I get it. And I've been there. And it's not like God couldn't have already understood that. I mean, God created us. So there's nothing in the human experience or mind that he can't understand. But we didn't know that. And we didn't feel that. And I think that incarnation and that being a refugee, being in exile, was more for us 
and our faith because we need a savior who we know looked in our eye and said, I get it. I have been there. I understand. I have this picture on my Christmas list. <laughs> it's an icon done by uh, someone who's getting pretty, gotten pretty famous for his icons, who apparently, I did not know, attended Greenville College. <laughs> um, but it's a print he made of Jesus as a refugee. And I just love seeing it because he tries to bring it into the present moment to help us understand what that was like. Um, and in the poet, the, po the poet said he is with a million displaced people on the long road of weariness and want. And this picture reminds me that Jesus was one with you know, the refugees that I meet all the time and that he gets it. He's been just as scared, just as poor, just as confused, just as vulnerable, and yet he chose that. And so for me, I guess when we're feeling lost or feeling like we don't fit in with the surroundings or like we're not understood or not understanding or like we don't know where the rent money is going to come from, Jesus is there to say, hey, let me tell you a story. I've been there. I get that. And Jesus' ministry is just filled with promises to heal the blind and the deaf and the lame and release the prisoner and bring dancing and light and justice because he knows how much it's needed for those who are in exile. And in some sense, we are all in exile, right? <laughs> He's fulfilling all those prophecies about justice and healing, but <clears throat> he's helping us to believe that too. Because he's helping us to know that the promises are personal. Because he's been on the receiving end of injustice and darkness. For us personally, this is the truth. For us corporately, it's the truth. Um, the day is coming or is probably already here when we will be the church in exile. We will no longer hold the powerful place in this country. Um, and what happens then? What happens when we're not in the place of what we call Christendom, the, the overarching religion that everybody is a part of? Um, and we're more in the exile spot on the edges, having to be the church where the church is not important or powerful or maybe even wanted in some places. What do you think happens to the church in those times? Goes what? Goes stronger because your, the commitment has to be there in order for it to mm. go on. Otherwise, yeah. Yeah. So those that remain are stronger. Yeah. I found out um, reading a book about somebody, family who went to Poland during the communist reign. Mm. And 
missionaries, you know, they had had a facade out to the to the rest of the world in Poland. But, right, right. But they were also missionaries, and so um, the body of people that they had that were <laughs> Christian was <coughs> extremely strong. <clears throat> I think I've told you before the story of when we went to East Berlin, when it existed. <laughs> and uh, the music group I was in crossed Checkpoint Charlie and went into East Berlin to do a concert. But of course, as you say, we were like, we are tourists. Because <laughs> we definitely want to see your bombed facades as part of our tourist experience. Because they hadn't been fixed, a lot of them. Uh, in 30, 40, 40 years, um, but to meet the people in that church was incredible. Like they didn't have divisions in that church because they couldn't afford it. And they were there because they meant it. And some of them came from a very long way away because they meant it. it was, it's humbling. <laughs> Yeah, I think the church digs into what it's really meant to be here for. I think the church leans on God more instead of on human power. It goes back to its roots and remembers what we're here for. As you say, I think it, it starts to filter out those who have Jesus' name on their lips, but they don't have it in their hearts. Um, and suddenly the church can become a witness for healing and light and release and justice and peace and all those things because it's not so focused on power and what I can <clears throat> what I can get there's a lot of you know we can see in this country a lot of people trying to hold on to the power by their fingertips because they know and they're afraid that losing power means losing identity um, but the church in exile is not to be feared. It's really to be greeted with open hearts saying, hey, God, what do you want to do with this? Where do you want to take this? How do you want us to be a community instead of what we were never meant to be? Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing to be in exile. In fact, the church has always been at its best when it's been more on the fringes than in the center of power. I mean, power gave us things like the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition, which don't even say it. <laughs> and slavery. And the fringes gave us abolition of slavery and hospice care. The fringes gave us, um, in one of the books I've, I've been reading in the last couple of weeks, you know, when the first missionaries went to, I, I think she was flying, well, she was flying into what was then Irian Jaya. Um, and they still had the custom of burning widows alive when their husband died in war. And it was the Christians on the fringes who said, no, let's not do that. <laughs> There's something better than that. Um, these are the people in exile that 
actually change the world from the fringes instead of the center, which is how it typically gets changed, which is just what Jesus did when he came home from exile. You know, Jesus came home from this exile and he grew up and he assumed he was baptized and assumed his ministry. And the first thing that happened was the devil saying, hey, don't you want power? And Jesus had to make the decision in that moment to say yes or no. And he said no. And it was after he said no, he was able to go back and say, hey, I'm bringing in the day of the Lord. I'm bringing in healing. I'm bringing in light. I'm bringing in justice. And it starts now. So we don't need to be afraid with all the tales about what's going to happen when they are in power because God is in power. God is in power and we will always be stronger for who we're being always supposed to be. And what Jeremiah told the people in exile to do, promote the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because your future depends on its welfare. That's what the church in exile does. That's what people in exile do. And we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Christ and creation, we talked about what individually we can do in our relationships and our work to bring about peace and shalom and healing and light. But what about a community? What does a community do when we talk about being in exile? And we talked about the prophecy when, when it says that Christ, well, it says the woman's seed will bruise the serpent's head. The women's seed will do battle with evil. And sometimes evil's gonna win and sometimes humans are gonna win. Ultimately, Jesus is gonna win. But in the meantime, it's our job to strike at evil's head. And we started with John Walton a couple weeks ago and, he, and he, what he had to say about that prophecy. And this is one of the things he said and he talks about what does it really mean to strike at evil's head? He says you can spar with evil or you can fight with evil. Sparring doesn't qualify, he says, as striking the evil's head. Company boycotts and marches and picket lines are sparring. Where are the potentially mortal blows that cause the enemy to reel back or retreat to lick his wounds? How does the community really fight evil, not spar with evil? And he goes on to say that what is happening in some cities in the churches is what Christians can be bringing, should be doing everywhere. Converting chaos into tranquilitas ordinus. I don't speak Latin. That's the best I can do. But I know what it means just by looking at it. One house at a time, one block at a time, one neighborhood at a time, one community at a time. We bring order of tranquility. Walton thinks communities of Christians can be bringing peace into chaos, and that is how we fight evil, which makes sense because shalom. We bring healing, we bring wholeness, we bring peace into chaos. And so the question is, What's not tranquil? What is chaotic 
in Oswego, in Yorkville, in Montgomery, Aurora, Plainfield, Florida. <laughs> Our extension church. <laughs> Urbana. <laughs> it's not tranquil there. What's not at peace? Where can we be at work? What's not tranquil in our lives? What needs peace? What can a refugee exiled Christ speak about those things? Not a Christendom Christ, not an easy majority white steeple church, clean swaddling clothes, no crying, he makes Jesus. Because that doesn't really speak to anybody except people in power. What does a refugee Jesus speak to? How does he speak to the lack of peace in our lives and the lives around us? Uh, Christ too, as, as Malcolm Geats said, is with a million displaced people on the long road of weariness and want, fleeing the wrath of someone else's quarrel. That Jesus. <clears throat> What would he have to say to our lack of peace? And that's what determines what we have to say to it. And I want to talk about that more next week, as far as the community goes. But those are the questions we leave with today. And for now, some of the first, first and last words of the gospel also apply. With all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God, my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of the age. Amen.